What's up, queens? Welcome to the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. I'm Ro. And I'm Savannah. And I'm Lilith. Back from the dead! Yay! (laughs) Buttercup's back! Sorry I've been gone, ladies. Yeah. I don't know how to explain my absence. Like, I'll just summarize it. Where have you been, Buttercup? Where have you been? Uh, Well, I'm engaged now, first of all. Yay! Congrats. So there's that. Suck it, haters. Yeah. No, wait, wait. Hold, hold on. We need to go back. We can't speed past that. Tell us the story. Yeah, don't speed past that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the way that we got engaged was actually kind of unromantic. Let me back up, actually. So uh, the reason why I haven't been recording is I got in a sporting-related head injury, and it's just kind of affected my mood. I've just been really, like, low energy, just getting really fatigued, not you know, having like memory problems, you know, I thought I might have like a concussion or something, but I don't really fit the criteria for concussion. I don't have like nausea or headaches or pressure or any of like the physical symptoms of a concussion. I was actually diagnosed with uh, PTSD. And I guess I just have chronic fatigue syndrome now uh, is what the psychiatrist said. Uh, So that's shitty. But anyway, so I was going for a walk with my then boyfriend and we were just like, sitting on a bench in Stanley Park watching the sunset. And he said, so I saw your tweet the other day. (laughs) And my tweet was like, oh, I might marry this guy because this guy's been taking really good care of me. And he's like, did you mean that? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And he's like, and so we just talked a bit. It wasn't like a super romantic with like a ring or anything. It was just like, so do you actually want to like get married? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay, we'll get married. And you can have my company's uh, health insurance because my company has better health insurance benefits than your company. And so, and it'll be really great for our taxes. And that was basically to get married. I fully, fully support that. I fully believe that women should get the maximum benefits from marriage. Yeah. And so that was the sales pitch is like, yeah, like, oh, and then also uh, the other issue we've been having is like shortly after my head injury, like I had this issue with like some of the male doctors were just like talking over me. And my boyfriend was with me in that appointment and they were like, is this man your husband? I'm like, no. And they're like, okay, like he can't be here. And so, yeah, basically in order to get his support in like a medical context, we have to be legally married. So it doesn't sound super romantic. Uh, I wish, you know, we'd gotten engaged under happier circumstances, but basically like I'd always been a little bit afraid of getting married in part because I was afraid that what if I get married and you know, I get sick or something happens to me and my husband leaves me. Or, you know, we all know that study where women who get cancer, their husband is like six times more likely to leave them, right? So I was always really worried that that might happen to me. I'd always just been worried that, you know, if I got married, he wouldn't take care of me when I'm sick. But my boyfriend, I guess now fiance, has actually been doing a really good job taking care of me. And I've been spending a lot of time in his place. And you know, his feelings for me haven't changed just because I've been sick. And that's been making me feel really like emotional and like feeling like, okay, this is like the real deal. Like, you know, I don't have to feel anxiety or worry that he's going to leave me because I got sick because like, I got sick before we got married and he stayed and he's been really supportive. And so that's the kind of man that I want to be with. So we're going to have like a three month honeymoon in a warm country. I'm not going to tell you guys which country it is. I don't want to dox myself, but I'm going to go like take the air and hopefully, you know, recover. But in the meantime, I'm not going to be able to record with the podcast. So I'm hoping that I'll get better and I'll be able to come back. But for now, I just 
get fatigued over basically nothing. I don't have a lot of mental energy. Like when we recorded the episode with Ellie Arrow, I was flat out exhausted for like two, three days after that. Even this episode, like it took a long time for me to prepare for this episode, but it was really, really important. That's why I wanted to record this episode. I really wanted to record this episode today based on Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear. I've been reading it the past few months, and we actually read it in our book club uh, on the Patreon Discord. You know, I'm, by the way, I'm really sorry to the book club for ghosting on you guys. It's I've been dealing with a lot of shit, clearly, so I'm sorry. But I did want to revisit this topic, and I wanted to deliver this topic to a wider audience, because if there's the one thing that I want more than anything else in the world, it's I want women to be safe when they're dating. Well, not even dating, just like in general, I think you can apply a lot of these tactics and advice and like guidance in this book to almost any situation exactly i don't know that i've read this book although it's been recommended many times the gift of fear i think i've seen a couple of interviews with the author yes yes yeah i haven't actually read the actual book yeah and i always tell women you know it's an absolute must read you got to read it and a lot of women have it on their reading list and you know life is busy we all have stuff going on it's you know We're not always going to be able to sit down and have time to read a book. So I kind of wanted to have like this episode be almost like a Cliff Notes version or just condense down the essential information. I do still recommend reading the book because he goes a lot into kind of the, the theory or the philosophy of, you know, predicting violence and risk analysis and so on. But for the purposes of this episode, I just have like seven key lessons essentially for, you know, safety strategies for women. So. Do you ladies have anything else to add or do you want to just jump into it? We're, of course, very sad that Lilith's not going to be able to stay with us regularly right now. But obviously, very happy news, but also some sad news because happy news, obviously, she's getting engaged. So it's bittersweet. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, suck it, haters. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, suck on that. <laughs> Fuck you guys. I got myself a man. Uh, everyone else can suck my dick. <laughs> FDS works. Fuck you, bitches. Fuck the haters. I got my dream man who loves me and worships me and takes care of me. And that's all I want. And everyone else can die mad. So yeah. About to be on his his insurance and go on a three month getaway on his dime. So, you know. Exactly. I love that. Absolutely love that. (laughs) I love that. Always look at the material benefits of marriage, ladies, if you're, and that is, I think, a fully legitimate reason to marry someone. Obviously, you really love him as well. And he loves you. But, you know, looking past the love goggles and actually looking, what can I get out of this? And your health is so important. So it's really cool that he actually recognized that you would benefit from that in this situation. Yeah, exactly. And truthfully, that's been like the hardest thing with retaining people who are involved with FDS is a lot of them do get married. So this is like, it's almost like a rite of passage now. You get married and... And then you move on and have a happy married life. Yeah, so... Yeah, you're not dating us. You're not dating anymore, really, so... (laughs) That's probably why I'll be around for a while. I have no intention of getting married, unless, of course, illness... (laughs) get baby fever i always said like i'm never gonna get married yada yada here's the thing i wanted a man who's marriage-minded and my fiance he said to me like oh i knew from the first few conversations i had with you i wanted you to be my wife someday and it took him three years before we finally started dating and now a year before you know we got engaged and so i mean it's a four-year project for him but you know he succeeded in his goal I succeeded my goal, which is to have like comfort, safety, happiness, romance, love, and all of that. So we both got what we wanted in the end. So yeah. Awesome. So yeah, we'll get back to our topic today. And then, you know, as as much as Lilith can join us, we will be absolutely happy to keep having her back. So but 
we might be just be flying as a duo for a while, just prepping the audience for that. <laughs> so they don't keep yelling at us like, where's Lilith? But yeah, whenever she's feeling well and can come back, we will absolutely have her. So today's topic, this episode is about safety strategies for women from The Gift of Fear. The Gift of Fear is a book written by Gavin DeBecker, who is an expert in personal security. He has uh, celebrities and politicians who are his clients, and it's his job. He has a, a firm basically designed to keep people safe at a high level. But I feel like his philosophies, his writings can be useful for everyday people as well. And yeah, the number one lesson, though, the most important lesson, if there's anything, if you take nothing else from this episode, number one lesson is don't ignore your intuition. It can save your life. And this is really challenging, especially for women, because I feel like women have been conditioned by patriarchy to ignore our intuition and told that we're crazy or hysterical or that, you know, or just communicate. He doesn't mean it. He doesn't know what he's doing. It's like, yeah, there's just so much external minimization that happens when a woman, you know, presents a real problem or a real threat. And in my experience, every shitty relationship that I've had in the very beginning, like when they were in, you know, supposed to be in the honeymoon stage or when we first started talking, I remember my intuition was screaming at me that something isn't right here. And every time I ignored that, that was when I was in trouble. Exactly. So it's important to understand that in humans, true fear is a survival signal. It's not the same as emotions like sadness or happiness. We evolved fear to keep us alive. And the examples that he provides, that DeBecker provides in his book, he opens with this story about Kelly, who's a rape survivor, and she used her instinct to avoid being murdered. And she was recalling the event and how, you know, oh, there, there were all these subtle cues that led up to her realizing that this man not only was there to rape her, he was also going to kill her. You know, it's like she said, described it as like her instinct took over and she got out of bed when he wasn't there. He was in the kitchen looking for a knife and then she was able to escape silently and survive to tell this tale, right? The other example that Gavin DeBecker provides is two police officers where one of them had a dream that one of them would be shot. And the officer that ignored his intuition, who ignored the danger signs, he was the one that got shot, not the one who had the dream, it was the other guy. And it's important to remember that people experience intuition in many different ways. It could be dreams, it could be an overwhelming sense of fear, a voice in the back of your mind. Dark humor is another one. Like, there's a line in the book where Gavin Becker writes, you know, anytime I have a client that says something like, you know, oh, we'll meet next Tuesday, aha, unless I, you know, unless someone kills me first or something like that. As soon as someone makes a a sort of dark humor joke like that, that's when he sits down to ask more questions because a lot of the times people use dark humor to present fears in a more kind of socially acceptable way. If you're having those kinds of like dark thoughts, like, oh, you know, maybe I'll, we'll meet next Tuesday unless my ex, like, as long as my ex doesn't stab me kind of thing, ha ha ha. Like it could be a fear at the back of your mind that you're feeling that you're afraid to communicate because you don't want to seem crazy, but don't ignore those feelings. So always remember that your brain is the product of millions of years of evolution, and it's evolved to pick up on subtle cues to keep you safe. So don't ignore your intuition, ladies. So tip number two is know the warning signs. Pre-incident indicators are part of the violent incident, and the early phases of dating should consist of disqualifying these men. And the example that Gavin DeBecker writes, he's like, in a, say a mass shooting, for example, does the mass shooting start when the man physically takes out his gun and starts shooting people? Or does it start when he buys the gun? Does it start when he starts coming up with the plan and so on, right? So 
if you want to get better at predicting violence and keeping yourself safe, you have to include the pre-incident indicators as part of the violent incident and pay attention to those. So first of all, recognize that every human being is capable of violence depending on the situation. Don't discount someone just because he seems like a nice guy. In fact, seeming like a nice guy is a red flag in and of itself. Yes, especially when it seems very, very forced. And one of the techniques that Gavin DeBecker talks about is the force teaming technique. And what that is, you know, it happens quite a lot. I see it in general discourse, but, you know, if we're talking about dating, in the context of dating, it's, you know, when they are very, very quick to establish common ground. So let's say, for example, you meet a guy at a bar and you tell him, oh, by the way, I'm, you know, going to my home and it's by Central Park. And he says, oh, I always walk by Central Park, you know, let's go together. It's sort of, he's trying to establish a connection, especially, you know, when it's something that is quite intimate to you, that is basically where you live, you know, prematurely. And he's doing that to get your guard down and to make you think that you both have something in common when sometimes you don't. A lot of the times when force teaming is used, it's not genuine. And you'll recognize that because you'll feel he's trying to get too close too soon. Exactly. And the example that Becker provides in Kelly's story was that this man was trying to get into her apartment and he said, we have a hungry cat to feed. And it's not his cat, it's her cat, right? So why would he say we? He's never seen the cat before. Yeah. Exactly. So, oh, we have a hungry cat to feed. Yeah. So creating an illusion of closeness and putting you on the same team. And it's essentially a disarming tactic. It's trying to disarm potential victims. So even now, I get so skeeved out when I'm talking to a guy that I barely know, and they, he starts using we statements. I consider that an immediate red flag. I'm like, whoa, who's the we here? <laughs> who's we? I'll even say, who's we? What's we? And they put them on the back foot, you know? Uh, excuse me, please. Excuse me, sir. There's no we here. <laughs> exactly. Another thing to look out for is uh, charm. Now, obviously, we at FDS, we want men who are socially competent. But if he's a little too charming, and if his charm is being used as a tool of manipulation, that's something to watch out for. Some people are just naturally charming and friendly, and that's more often than not, it's not that big of a deal. But if it's to get something out of you, to get you to lower your guard, watch out. Yes. And I really like the way Gavin DeBecker puts it in the book. He said, you need to change it from this man is charming to this man is charming me. Because Unlike the example that, for example, Lilith just said about people who are generally nice and charming is that they aren't generally doing it to a specific person to get something out of that person. You know, men who are charming you, they want something from you. And it's insidious because they want that thing from you, regardless of if you are willing to give it to them or not. That is why they resort to the charming technique. It's essentially just like Lilith said, it's to get your guard down and to get you to comply with whatever it is they want. And I've come across low value men who've actually specifically said, especially men who sleep around, that they use charm to get sex. They do that a lot of the time. Yeah. So if I'm talking to a guy and he's turning on the charm, ew, immediate red flag. Ew, yeah. Especially men who are more socially competent, who understand that women want to feel like, you know, they matter. They want to feel good about themselves. I guess the evolved low value men will use that to his advantage. And instead of just being an inept incel, they will then try to turn on the charm to get what they want from the woman. Yeah. The phrase turn on the charm, if it's something that they can turn on and off, it's not genuine. If they're just like that all the time, they're just a friendly, charismatic person, that's just their personality. 
I mean, some people who are like that can also be like serial killers and stuff or like con men. Some people who are naturally charismatic can also be red flaggy. Another thing to look out for is too many details. That's a sign that someone's lying. Honest people don't fear being doubted. And so, yeah, if they're adding a bunch of unnecessary details that are not really relevant to the story, you know, it's a sort of distraction technique to get you to look at the the individual trees and not the whole forest. I don't know. Yeah. And they do that because like, they know they're being deceptive and they don't believe their lies. They believe that other people need to hit extra content in order to make the lie believable. It's like one of the key signs of deception is if people are adding, you know, way too many extra details that aren't even necessary. And actually, that's how some serial killers have been caught. That's the reason why in some like murder investigations, the police, they won't release all the information about the crime purely because some serial killers, I can't think on the top of my head, but basically they'll dob themselves in during the questioning phase because they'll start to give extra details that the police didn't ask for, you know, that basically links them to the crime because only the killer would have known that because it wasn't public information. So that's actually how, you know, some, you know, serial killers have been ratted out, basically. So side note, one thing that this tip reminded me of is that often survivors of childhood trauma also have a tendency to over-communicate. So just because someone's doing too many details isn't always a sign that they're lying. There's also some people where they just learn to sort of over-communicate because they were raised in a household that was really like hostile and they just learn to kind of over-explain things in order to be believed because they expect to be treated like a liar no matter what. So there are some people who are like that. So just essentially dig deeper into the behavior as well, either way. Exactly. So it's something to pay attention to, but it's not always like, oh, this person has nefarious intent. Because some people are just doing that because they've just been conditioned in that way. And it's unfortunate for them. Oh, another major one is typecasting. So this one, I previously referred to this as backfooting. We talked about this in the Lundy Bancroft episode, where, you know, say a man accuses you of cheating to get you to act in a way that's like really obvious that you're not cheating, but you're acting in a way that's beneficial to him. So if a man accuses you of something like, oh, you're probably too stuck up to talk to a guy like me, he's doing that to make you think like, oh, I have to talk to him to prove I'm not stuck up. He knows it's not true. And they're trying to capitalize on, you know, women's desire to not be offensive because like most women don't want to be seen as rude or uppity or stuck up or a gold digger. But when a guy leads with that, it's basically they're trying to bait you into engaging with them. It was just like the other day when someone on Twitter called me a gold digger and I was like, yeah, I am. And what? End of conversation. I'm not going to try and prove that I'm not. I actually am because I also have money. What's wrong with being a gold digger? Like, yeah. And I've also got money. Like, why would I associate with somebody who doesn't when I've worked hard to amass wealth for myself? But anyway, that's just an example of, I don't believe in, for example, you know, when some feminists say we need to reclaim the word slut. That's not really what I'm talking about. But if you don't allow what a guy is saying to affect you, especially if he's saying something negative about you, it will make you a lot happier and a lot stronger because half the time they don't believe the crap they're saying. You know, they're just trying, you know, to bait you into a conversation. For many, many guys, even if you scream at him and say, that's not true, I'm not like this, like some women do, they fall for the trap and start saying, I'm not like this. They start writing long paragraphs. He still won because what he wanted was your attention. And it doesn't matter if that attention is positive or negative. That's why you literally just say thank you very much or just don't say anything and just ignore him. Just block and delete. Exactly. You have nothing to prove. So don't feel like you have to prove him wrong. Exactly. 
personally, my favorite is if a man accuses me of something negative, I just double down, actually. And that shocks them. They're just like, ah, like, I wasn't expecting that. (laughs) You weren't supposed to actually be like that. I was just saying that to get your attention, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I am a stuck up bitch. And what? Like, they won't know what to say. Like, they're not used to that answer, right? But yeah, I'm a gold digger. And what, you know, what are you gonna do about it? Nothing. So. Yeah. Oh, so another warning sign is unsolicited promises. And this came up in the Kelly case as well, where he said something like, oh, I'll just put down my groceries and I promise I'll leave after that. That's weird. Like when people make criminals often use unsolicited promises like that to get victims to trust them. But it's like, why were you making that promise in the first place? It was unsolicited. She didn't say like, it's not in response to anything that she said. It's just something that he's saying to get her guard down. Right. And also it's something that you should do that should be obvious. Like if you're carrying in someone's groceries and you've delivered said groceries, you should leave anyway. You shouldn't need to promise somebody that you'll leave. It doesn't make any sense unless you want to do them harm. And you are saying that just to get their guard down so you can do harm, which was exactly what happened in this particular case. Exactly. And then, oh, and the biggest red flag of all, and we've talked about this on FDS so many times because of how important it is, is discounting the word no the biggest red flag. If you say no, I don't want your help or no, I don't want to meet you or no, I don't want to go to this restaurant or anything like that. And the guy insists or does not listen to you when you say no, run. First of all, get comfortable with saying no to men and run if he ignores it. A lot of women get scared of saying no because a lot of men do lash out at women and sometimes do react violently in a scary way when women say the word no. But as women, we have to fight that We have to fight that and get comfortable with saying the word no, because if he responds negatively to that no, that in and of itself is a signal that you don't want a relationship with that person. If you're afraid of saying the word no to someone, that is a sign that you shouldn't be in a relationship with that person. Only be in a relationship with someone if they respect your no. And another red flag is, is if you say no, and then they start trying to find solutions to your objections. This is also why I advise women where possible, just say no and don't give a reason why. Because let's say, for example, a guy wants to take you out on a date and you think it's too late, but really you don't actually want to meet that guy at all. And you say, oh no, it's too late. He'll then say, oh, okay, well, we can meet up in the afternoon or we can meet in the morning. And then they might try and go back and forth at different angles, even though that is still not okay. But don't allow yourself to be talked down because that is... Um, outside of being violent, that's another tactic that men will do to wear you down is that they will just try to to problem solve in quotation marks to get you to say yes. But really what they're doing is they're not respecting your no. And that's just like Linda said, that is a big red flag. Exactly. And no is a complete sentence. If you say like, no, I don't want a relationship. And he says this in the book. No, I don't want a relationship right now. All he hears is right now, which means that you might want a relationship with them in the future. What you should say is, no, I don't want a relationship with you, which is like, there's no objection that he can handle with that, you know? So don't negotiate with men. And if he ignores your no, run. So tip number three, or lesson number three, I should say, understand Jaka. Jaka is a tool that I now use all the time. It's J-A-C-A. Jaka is an acronym that Gavin DeBecker's firm uses to predict violence. It stands for perceived justification perceived alternatives, perceived consequences, and perceived ability. And when all four are present, that is when violence is most likely to occur. 
So for example, perceived justification, that would be like, does he feel justified in his mind to do something bad to you? And men will come up with all kinds of justifications, like she rejected me, she's a bitch, she deserves it, whatever, right? That's why like things like victim blaming are so dangerous, because that increases the justification in people's minds to cause harm. Alternatives is other alternatives, like, you know, you know, say, for example, a stalker, if they have other alternatives, like writing letters, or, you know, trying to get your attention in some way, other than violence, most likely, they will try to use the other means, you know, say someone gets fired from their job, and they're they're at their last wit, and they feel like they have no other option, you know, things like a mass shooting in an office, for example, often happen when people are just really, really desperate. And in their mind, they don't have any other alternatives. Sidebar, but one of the things that was so crazy to me about reading this book is how Americans have just accepted that violence in the workplace is like a thing. Like, bro, what is it like to be an American and just accept that violence in the workplace is normal? <laughs> like, that's so crazy to me. Like, are people just afraid of firing people all the time because, oh, he might go on a mass shooting? Like, it depends on the office. I feel like every office has like that one guy. If you heard that he shot up a place, you wouldn't be surprised. I think a lot of it just has to do with our overall exploitative labor culture. So it's just not uncommon for people to just go off the rails because they feel slighted in addition to uh, our very generous uh, gun laws. So I don't know. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. Like, So workplace mass shootings is a great a litmus test for Jacka. So say like a, a worker gets fired, they believe it's unjust that their boss fired them unfairly or something. So that's in their mind justification. Uh, alternatives, you know, is there like a, you know, human rights lawyer or like, are there, you know, workers comp or, you know, other avenues that workers can go to if they feel like they were fired unjustly? Or is there, do workers just basically, most states are like at will states, right? So your employer can fire you for like any reason, right? Yeah, it's really, really, really hard to prove any type of case against an employer because everyone's at will. Like, You basically have to prove that they fired you for a protected characteristic like race, gender, sex, etc. But even then, most employers aren't stupid enough to do that outright. Most of the time, they create some kind of fake paper trail of you sucking, even if you don't, and then fire you. So it's like, we do technically have that. And then it depends on your state to see how aggressive the enforcement is. But like, most states don't aggressively enforce it. In most states, you're pretty much SOL, even if it's like, it has to be like so egregious that a lawyer would take it on and have a reasonable chance of winning and or it's enough to make the company settle because they're concerned about the public perception. But like, at least in all of my years, I've never seen or heard of anyone anywhere in any of my jobs in an extended network successfully win a suit. I think I've heard of like one person who got a settlement for sexual harassment. And it was because it was like they had long receipts of this person who was employed at the company, to, like using company equipment to like harass them through email and IM and stuff. Damn. Yeah. So maybe that's why like workplace violence is so common in the US is because there's not a lot of alternatives for workers who are in their mind being, you know, who are treated in a way that they perceive as unfair. And the we'll get to ability. The gun culture, too, is the other problem. Exactly. So perceived consequences. So in the context of like domestic violence, for example, perceived consequences. So basically, does the person committing the violent act think that the consequences are going to be favorable to them or unfavorable? And, you know, if someone is really at their last rope, some people like life or freedom is not that important to them. In their mind, like, you know, getting even or revenge or so on is more important to them than 
not going to jail or being alive. A lot of people, for example, commit suicide after these sorts of violent acts. And so, yeah, you have to try to understand not just from your perspective as a reasonable person, but you have to get inside the mind of an unreasonable person of like, what do they perceive as favorable or unfavorable consequences? I have to say too, though, I mean, a lot of it is just scrot nonsense too, because like I said, there's always one guy at the office and it's it's usually not just isolated to him, people thinking he's going to go postal if he's treated badly at work. He usually has choice opinions about women. He's usually like socially awkward and kind of a drag on everybody, but he's like the most aggrieved person there despite being the least valuable player. So a lot of times it's just like, there's like a dichotomy between their perceived worth and their actual worth and they're mad. <laughs> and then like when sometimes when they're reminded of the reality in sometimes harsh ways, then you see these guys go off, go off the wheels with the shooting. It's almost entirely men, right? And a lot of times it's men between like, well, actually, I don't know, maybe up to 50, to be honest, but like somewhere young men, 18 to 25, or like 25 to 45, you know, guys that might be in their in their mid career that feel like they're being passed over or something happened. So it's a little bit of a difficult thing because when you think of like actual workplace violence, it's almost entirely that demographics. And they're not the only people exploited under capitalism. They're just the biggest assholes about it. So well, that's what I've come to realize from this book is that for a lot of men, it's not about right or wrong. And in their mind, what they consider right is them having control or them getting attention. That's what they perceive as right. You know, so like in their mind, like the consequences could be like, oh, I get back at my shitty like my boss is such a bitch and she's always telling me what to do. I'm going to put her in her place or something. Or I'm going to, you know, this woman didn't accept my advances, you know, and she could put a restraining order against me. She's trying to control my behavior. So I'm going to like kill her, you know, so that I can feel like I'm in control, that kind of thing. Right. So when you're looking at Jacka, you have to understand like, what are the consequences from the mind of this like deranged, depraved person with a fucked up value system? Right. And then the last one is ability, perceived ability. And this is a huge one in the States is, do they have the ability to act on their violent urges? If guns are super accessible and easy for everyone to have, the ability for people to perpetuate violence is very, like, that threshold is very low. It doesn't take a lot of effort for someone to be violent, basically. So yeah, if someone has like a collection of weapons, if they like weapons, if they've recently purchased a weapon, if they live in a state where there's no background checks on getting weapons and you can just literally walk into Walmart and buy one no problem, the risk of violence is much higher than in any other place where you could live. Yeah, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry, bro, that you have to live in a fucked up... <laughs> I'm sorry your country is all fucking weird when it comes to guns. Yeah. That's why I'm very grateful for remote work and I'm going to push for that till the day I die. It's a safety issue. I don't want to be the next target of the office weirdo and deal with just daily microaggressions. I think I recently had a rant on my Twitter about it, like just dealing with certain types of people. It's tough because it's like they're not wrong. Like the system sucks. You know what I mean? But like the way that they uh, feel like think to handle that is so self-absorbed that people don't root for them. You know what I mean? Like if you one thing, if it's like, oh, I'm doing this for us, but it's usually just some scrote who like feels like everyone exists to serve him and then goes into like massive narcissistic rage injury. And so therefore can't really get the same amount of like union support or support from other people to back them up. And that's just kind of the tough thing because we do need worker reform, but all the guys that are the most, I don't know, like the guys with like the hair trigger tempers are not people anybody wants to follow to that, you know? You know, I'm convinced that the whole RTO return to office policy is just by and for toxic people like that who feel like they have the need to have this little like fiefdom in the office of people they can boss around. And it's much harder to do that when everyone's remote, you know, 
100%. I mean, that's my thought. I mean, you can see most of the people complaining have been men overwhelmingly because, yeah, they're used to having that look. It's either like the office busybody or like if it's a woman, but or it's mostly men who don't want to go have to take on any responsibility for their families, want to cheat while they're at work, or they've been pushing because there's a lot of young men who aren't socialized properly. And usually, let me tell you, I've sat through so many management trainings about how to help to onboard socially awkward people or like people who are not participating. And like, they always like make it gender neutral or like race neutral or something like that to make it not seem like it's not a particular demographic. But overwhelmingly, it's like young men who just have not been but like young men in general, like they're not socialized properly to uh, exist in an office place. So like, there's so much of management is about like onboarding and team building, etc. And like, it's easier to get buy in from most people. But like, a lot of times young men are just like, even if they buy in, sometimes they're just they have a lot of social faux pas, right? And stuff that would like piss people off. So some of the return to office cultures is is like specifically, in my opinion, for them when they talk about like, oh, we need to make sure like people are getting mentored in the workplace and they're being socialized properly in the workplace and they're making friends. And I keep thinking like, you mean young men specifically, because most like young women will make friends or have like other socializing influences. And furthermore, like, it's so hard to get mentors anyway, as a woman. So when I hear about mentors, like nine times out of 10, I think men over other men. Because it's actually extremely hard to get mentors, male or female, for women. Not impossible. I don't know. In my personal experience, mentorship from men almost always has a tinge of sexual harassment. Exactly. That was going to be my point. Yeah. (laughs) And mentorship from women often, I hate to say this, but I've had some female bosses in the past that like, they don't mentor younger women. They see them as a threat, as like a potential usurper to their queen bee throne kind of thing. And so they see a woman that's like younger than them, smarter than them, prettier than them, whatever perceived threat might be there. Like I just have a target on my back from like female bosses that I've had in the past. Unfortunately, I wish that wasn't the case, but that's been my experience. The thing is, like I said, I kind of went off on boomers like on my Twitter. Sorry. But a lot of it is just like a lot of them. Yeah, they don't want to invest in young people because they don't, you know, they're worried about their own job security. So a lot of it just seems to me, to be honest, I don't even know if that's a gender specific thing. It's so much. Okay, I guess we have different experiences. But I'll say like, for me, in my experience, I'm not even sure it's completely gender specific so much as like generational specific too. where especially the people who are older than you, they have a certain way they want to do things. And sometimes the way they mentor you is like, not helpful. Yeah, might have worked for their generation. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily going to work for their. And then sometimes like, it's just a matter of like, they're busy, and they don't necessarily want to invest anybody. They're worried about their own life. So like mentorship seems to me like, when they do mentorship, quote unquote, in the workplace, it's just something to check to check off management metrics, right? And it's less like because they actually feel emotionally invested in most of the people they come across. So like, you will find a rare manager that like really likes you and really wants to go to bat for you and advocate you and thinks you're really great. And they think that ultimately, it'll be in their best interest to promote you. But there's so little interest for your average like person who's above you to promote you specifically above like lip service, they need to check off their like, I did mentorship as a middle manager, you know what I mean? So some of it is just that. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about actually brings us to the fourth point, because we're talking about workplace safety in number four. So tip number four is, if you're an employer, do your fucking due diligence before hiring someone, pay attention to the red flags, and take decisive action. Because violence in the workplace, especially violence against women is not a rare or isolated incident. If you're an employer, always call references, do background checks, It's actually quite like even within professions that are very that should be closely monitored, like government security, you'd be shocked at the number of people who are allowed to work 
and they don't have a full background check. I know in the UK, they call them employing them at risk because sometimes background checks, especially if you work in government, they can take like literally 12 months. So what they'll do is though, they will allow somebody to work for them at risk, basically without doing any of the checks or the checks coming back as clean. Oh, I was going to say like between our three major reporting agencies and all the people soft stuff, like it's almost impossible to be off the grid in the United States. So I don't know if that's like country specific either. I mean, I, I went and pulled like my credit report. It has every job I've ever had and the salary and everything I've ever had on like my credit report. In the UK, it's a bit more difficult because of GDPR, which our data protection law, we don't have something like the work number. Um, so employers can't easily access like that information. The only way they can get it is from like HMRC, which is a UK equivalent of the Inland Revenue or the IRS, as they call it in the US. Do you have like a social security number or like whatever the like, equivalent of that is, like a unique ID number? I mean, we do. And um, we've got national insurance numbers, but that basically has all the positions that you've worked in and the length of time, your salary. But an employer can't access that. But you'll basically need, um, they'll need to get the candidate to get the letter from HMRC and the candidate will have to give it to the employer. So, I mean, employers basically can't access that. So if there is a reference check in the UK, uh, the employer will have to literally call every reference. The only time they won't is if it's developed vetting, which is basically if you want to be a diplomat or work like at the top of government. But even that, the reason why DV vetting, as they call it, takes so long is because they have to basically interview like everybody. They have to manually check it. There's no central system that employers have access to where they can just see that because of data protection, basically. So what you guys are describing is much more higher level than what Gavin De Becker is recommending. Like he's saying he has a line in the book where he's like, I have very little patience for employers who don't do the bare minimum. But even small employers, they can't be bothered. That's, that's basically it. They literally can't be bothered. A lot of them. It's so low cost. And it literally could take like a half day to just like call back. Like when someone applies, you don't even have to actually call anybody. Just like looking at, on face value at the application of like, oh, the same phone number for their relatives or their emergency contact is also used as a reference, that kind of stuff. Like, or, you know, just even just asking them, like, why did you leave your last job? If they say it's, oh, personality conflict or, oh, my boss was an asshole. If you're asking these basic questions in the interview process and they show that they don't have the ability to, like, take responsibility for their actions or, you know, understand other people's points of view, stuff like that, right? It doesn't have to be super complicated and high level. Like, I do recommend doing a criminal background check because one of the things that came up multiple times in this book is that someone with a history of domestic violence is almost always more likely to be in like the workplace, for example. There was David Burke who, you know, shot down. This was like the most deadly workplace violent incident. It was David Burke in US Air. Uh, something like 43 people, I believe, died. As a side note, but totally related, there was a big controversy that blew up this week over this guy who used to have the Twitter handle Waymo the God. Have you guys followed that at all? So he tried to rebrand as a TikTok chef. And what he used to do is write really horrific racist things. He's black. But he used to write like horribly racist things against black women, especially dark skinned black women. Oh, yes. Yes. I've, I've seen this guy. Yeah. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. Like basically telling them to kill themselves, like comparing them to all types of animals and stuff like probably the worst. I mean, honestly, could have been written by a KKK person. It sounded like Stormfront and also apparently had several was asked to leave his school for a while because of a pending sexual harassment, sexual assault case. And when he was in, I think, undergrad and 
somehow at some point ended up finishing his schooling and then going on to law school and then got hired into the district attorney's office in Houston, Texas. I think it's Harris County as an assistant district attorney and rebrand himself as this like uh, feel good TikTok chef, except for the internet doesn't particularly forget. So they pulled up all his old tweets, etc. And so a lot of people were saying like, oh, these guys are just trolling in the internet. They don't mean this thing. But this guy now has a position of semi-authority in the TA's office of all places and district attorney. And you can't trust him to be like fair towards Black women who are victims of crimes, right? In addition to the actual sexual assault and sexual harassment allegations that are being alleged by different women on Twitter. This is another situation where it just looks like they don't do due diligence on these guys. And I feel like even if they did, men are forever being made excuses for. So like just to reiterate your point, but yeah. And yeah, some of it is also in the employment world is that male candidates are given the benefit of the doubt way more than they should, generally speaking. He didn't even like, he was stupid enough to actually use his real name, right? Like he wasn't even like trolling behind a burner account. But it wasn't even subtle. And, you know, that just goes to show like, you know, the extent of the male privilege. And also bearing in mind that, this is a bit of a tangent, apologies, but bearing in mind that the actual recruitment system it's actually quite Machiavellian in that people are encouraged to lie and manipulate to get the job. Yeah, because if you've ever been in any kind of competitive recruitment process, everybody's embellishing, everybody's lying. And, you know, somehow we've become okay with that. And generally speaking, you know, men are more likely to possess the dark triad traits, which are Machia- which are Machiavellianism, but narcissism and also psychopathy a lot more than women. And so I'm not surprised that like degenerate men, you know, tend to go far in recruitment and in their careers, because ultimately the recruitment processes that we currently have, it rewards that sort of behavior. Oh, yeah. But back to David Burke. So the most deadly workplace violent incident was uh, Pacific Southwest Airlines flight 1771. 43 passengers on a plane died because this guy David Burke was getting revenge on his boss for firing him. But David Burke had a history of domestic violence and a bunch of other red flags and like other workplace, like, you know, stealing money and like just a bunch of red flags that like had these things been paid attention to, this event might not have happened kind of thing. So had they paid attention to these red flags, this event may not have happened. And so if you're an employer and you do a criminal background check on an employee and find that he has a history of domestic violence in any way, don't hire him. You're putting your employees at risk. Moving forward, hopefully, you know, hopefully I recover from this and get to have a job eventually. But as an employer in the future, I will definitely be doing this bare minimum, like safety background checks for my own employees safety, right? Because I wouldn't want to bring someone on the team. You know, this happens all the time where like, you know, you bring someone on the team, he develops like a fixation or weird hyperfixation on another woman there. And suddenly, you know, not only is she getting like st- sexually harassed or stalked or so on, like she's in actually very real danger if she rejects him. You know, if you try to fire a guy like that once he's already on the team, that can be the inciting incident that causes him to act violent. So the best thing is just to not hire these people from the beginning, like at all. And don't be guilt tripped by some of these laws that are coming out that are increasingly trying to hide. Well, they're trying to hide people's criminal records. So I know there's some laws in New York and in California that are basically trying to make it illegal for them to do background checks. I think they're trying to make it illegal to do background checks for apartments in New York. And then in California, I think everything other than like a sex offense, employers are not allowed to see or credit companies or background checking companies are not allowed to disclose. So they're basically trying to make it so that, yeah, people who leave prison have a better chance to reintegrate into society. But that does come with risk. 
I mean, it depends on the crime. So things like drug crimes, I would consider them very low risk in the workplace. Actually, like one of the best salespeople I ever had on my team was convicted of, of was a drug dealer in a past life kind of thing. So like, I feel like people who have committed drug offenses are probably a little bit less dangerous as long as they're not like, you know, high level like mobsters, you know, they haven't like committed like murders and stuff like that. But if it's just like possession of drugs, selling drugs, not that that's not a big deal. But like, yeah, like domestic violence, violence against women, huge red flag. That's the concern is that in a lot of these cases, a lot of advocacy groups are advocating for like full sealing of any type of record. But yeah, if you're an employer or you're a landlord and you need to figure out, hey, I have a building full of kids and now it's illegal to look on this person to see if they have a history of violence against kids or women, you know, that that does kind of make it a bit difficult. Like for it makes it a little bit less safe for women in those environments. So it's tough. Yeah. So if you're an employer, I highly recommend reading this book. Gavin Becker has a list of interview questions that are really valuable. If I'm ever an employer again in the future, I'm definitely going to be asking these questions because it's important to get a sense of this person's value system. Are they capable of acknowledging multiple perspectives? Are they capable of acknowledging how their actions might have contributed to a conflict? You know, beware of anyone who has a pattern of intimidation, manipulation, threats of violence. If they talk about weapons, if they've purchased a weapon in the last 90 days, they have a collection of weapons, run, you know, get a sense of how they resolve conflict. Beware of people who have a sort of paranoia or feel like other people are out to get them because in their mind that can add to the justification leading up to a crime. Also beware of the scriptwriter, which is someone who has really inflexible thinking. They create like narratives around interact, you know, mundane interactions. Don't take responsibility for their actions and always cast themselves as the victim. And also when you're firing someone, be direct. Take reasonable steps to prevent high emotions. And like, you know, a lot of the times employers will be afraid of firing someone like this because they think, oh, if I fire someone who's like crazy, they might come back and, you know, try to kill me or something like that. So they transfer them to other departments and make it somebody else's problem. The more you transfer them or kind of jerk around with people like that, the more in their mind, the justification increases. So it's better to just like try to, you know, try to do it in a way, you know, he lists a bunch of strategies about like what day to do it, how to do it and so on in a way that's not going to leave the person feeling really high emotions, which, you know, if they're feeling very, very strong and negative emotions about being fired, then yeah, the likelihood they're going to come back on Monday with a gun is higher. So beware of that. So moving on to number five. When leaving an abusive relationship, be very careful with restraining orders. This was something that was very enlightening in this book. You know, a lot of people think that, oh, if I just get a restraining order, then I'll be safe. Wrong. Statistically speaking, like a piece of paper isn't going to stop a violent man. In many cases, a restraining order is actually the inciting incident that triggers a man to go from inaction to action. You know, as we all know at FDS, it's important to remember that abuse is about power and control. A lot of these men actually kill themselves after committing violence. And the reason is that in their mind, refusing to accept rejection or refusing to accept a loss of control is more important to them than life and freedom itself. Violent men are not deterred by court orders. Court orders are only effective in cases where there's no prior history of violence. In other words, like someone who's least likely to be violent to begin with. Also, just as an aside, if you're in the UK or anywhere, I've actually worked quite a lot with police officers in the UK, they will admit to you that if a man has a restraining order, there's fuck all they can do to enforce it. It's literally not worth the paper it's written on. And even if he does like break the court order, they've even said they just haven't got the resource to deal with it effectively. Exactly. So understand like in the mind of a really depraved man, they're thinking like, 
especially say like he's married, he has a wife and kids, a house in his mind, that's his little fiefdom, right? A restraining order is telling him to give up on his whole mini kingdom. Basically, he has a lot of investment in that relationship that that piece of paper is now expecting him to give up on. And in his mind, it's like, she's trying to control me, I'm gonna kill her so that she doesn't have any control over me, right? For them, being in control is more important to them than being alive or not being in jail. And so the best strategy in this case is to make yourself unavailable to him. You have to reduce the ability for this person to be violent to you. So go to a battered women's shelter, develop an escape plan, you know, basically run and hide. Like you're actually, you know, if you stay at the house where, you know, he knows where you live and so on, and you get a restraining order against him and he has a history of violence, that's not going to stop him. He's almost the likelihood of him going to the house and just like killing you is actually, I wouldn't say it's a high risk, but it's very, very possible. It's much better actually to just go into hiding. And it's unfortunate and shitty that the onus is on women to have to change our lives to avoid violence from men. But when it comes to safety, it's not about justice. It's not about fairness. It's about keeping you alive, right? So it's shitty, but that's life. And moving on to number six, don't let a man down easy. Be direct. No is a complete sentence. So we've all learned from media, and there's lots of different movies that Gavin DeBecker criticizes in this book that have the plot line, you know, The Graduate is one where boy meets girl, girl rejects boy, boy harasses girl, boy gets the girl kind of thing, girl accepts boy, whatever. And we've been presented with these kinds of media narratives, and a lot of people have accepted those as true. But it's important to remember that persistence after no isn't a sign of love. It's stalking, it's obsession. Do not negotiate after you reject a guy, block and delete. Any further contact that you have with him after that will be seen as negotiation. If he calls you 30 times and you tell him to stop calling you, he learns that the cost of reaching you is 30 calls and that increases his emotional investment. That's why at FDS we say block and delete. Yeah, any engagement is pay dirt to scrotes, even if it takes them a lot to get to it. Exactly. And there's there's a line in the book that was really chilling to me. It was like, you'll be thinking of me. You might not be thinking good things, but you'll be thinking of me. Like, so if a guy wants a relationship and you don't want a relationship with him, in a lot of really depraved men's minds, like the next best thing is like, oh, well, she's going to be worried, you know, that I'm going to come and stalk her, kill her or something. Like she'll be thinking negative things about like in the mind of a depraved man, negative attention is still attention. And if you're not going to give him positive attention, then he'll give you a reason to give him negative attention. So it's best to just not give him any attention at all. It's safer to not give him any attention at all. And uh, last but not least, number seven, it's important to pay relaxed attention to your environment rather than paying rapt attention to your imagination. So in other words, like you have to pay attention to the reality of the world in front of you. Like don't get caught up in worries and anxieties. And this might seem contradictory to everything that I've said so far, but the reality is that if you're full all of the time, we actually lose the ability to sense when we're actually in danger. And what makes it even harder is that media has us afraid of things that are rare, things like sharks, assassinations, even terrorist attacks. Like, although they take up a lot of media space, it's actually very unlikely for you to die in a terrorist attack. You're much more likely to die in a car accident or something like that. Yet we get into the cars and drive around all the time. It gets us to pay attention to things that are rare and not things that are common, things like domestic violence or incest are actually much more likely to happen than like, you're actually much more likely to be sexually assaulted by a family member or someone you know, than, you know, some stranger, you know, jumping out of you from the bushes on the street, right? So keep in mind that worry is not the same as fear, more likely, it's a distraction that harms more than it helps. 
So just keep in mind that human behavior is like a chain and the violent incidents are merely the links in that chain. And when you know the signs of like each link leading up to the violent act, human behavior is actually very predictable. Beware of electronic scare tactics, things like local news, viral content, because it can desensitize your fear response and cause unnecessary anxiety. And I wanted to end on a a kind of positive note, actually, because although this episode has been very doom and gloom, it's important to keep in mind that although the world is a dangerous place, it is also a safe place. There are bad and there are violent people, but there are far more people who are good and who are nonviolent. We survive risks and we make high stakes predictions every day. And if we allow our worries and anxieties to prevent us from living a full and happy life, is that actually better than the actual violence? So I want women listening to this episode to keep in mind that, you know, yes, there are like dangers all around us and things that we should pay attention to. But at the same time, you know, pay relaxed attention to your environment. Don't get caught up in worries and anxieties about what might happen. It's important to kind of, you know, as much as you can live in the moment and enjoy life for what it is in the present moment as as much as possible. Yeah, I feel like the name, the gift of fear is really important that it's just a, a safety mechanism to keep yourself safe, but it's not meant to make you a prisoner of your own mind, you know? <laughs> exactly. Such a fine line, you know, like, well, maybe not that fine of a line, but I, I do think as your BS meter and your ability to pick up on your environment gets more finely tuned, then you can actually relax. So it has like the, maybe the opposite effect that you start to feel more confident right? Instead of paranoid, because you start to feel more confident in yourself to remove yourself from a situation that's not safe versus like feeling like I never know when things are going to happen. That's why I'm a big advocate of knowledge being power, because you can kind of relax and feel like something's not going to come out of left field that I didn't see coming. I have the ability to take care of myself. I have the ability to see the signs in front of me, connect the dots and remove myself as needed. You know, quietly slip out the back if you need to. (laughs) Also, yeah, like, Understanding that like it's running away, escape, that's another point that I forgot to mention, but like it's much better to disengage from the threat than to try to engage in a war. Like he talks about throughout the book, like a reasonable person cannot win a war with an unreasonable person. Like, you know, they're gonna be willing to do shit that you cannot I cannot tell you how long it took me to t- learn that specific lesson. Jesus Christ, like please internalize that. <laughs> like, wait, wait. <laughs> yeah. Like if a guy's being crazy, like I know that in the past, sometimes I've talked about how like, yeah, sometimes I troll guys into blowing up and then, you know, that their angry reaction is used against. I do that in certain situations, but I I actually avoid doing that as much as I can because like truly depraved men are willing to do things that you can't even think of, you know? And like people like me or people like Gavin DeBecker, where maybe you were raised in a more like dysfunctional, like he talks about how, you know, as a child, his parents were really violent. And part of the reason why he became like a security expert and a kind of like guru on violence is because of he witnessed those things in childhood, right? And so I actually kind of relate my childhood and his childhood were actually had some similarities. And so someone raised in that environment, you know, you learn to pay attention to what are the danger signals. I mean, for someone who had some dysfunctional upbringing as well, like, yeah, there's a temptation to engage with it because you want to like, yeah, you want justice. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> You want justice. You want to like make things right. Yeah. Like that's the thing. Like I have the same thing where like sometimes, you know, when I spot like toxic traits in someone that I see recognized in my own parents, for example, there's like a flicker of like, it's almost like, oh, I'm going to make things right for all those times as a child that I was done wrong kind of thing. But now I'm, I've achieved more wisdom. I've achieved more maturity. This illness actually has, has kind of forced me to like reevaluate a lot of things in life and sort of think more critically about what's actually important. And like winning fights with crazy people, 
I'm now at a point where I'm like, I don't care about winning fights with crazy people. I'm like, fuck these people. Like, I don't even want to be on Twitter anymore because it just doesn't matter. Like, I just rather like just cuddle with my fiance and my dog and like, you know, just watch TV and like give each other head scratches, like shit like that. Right. Like just the simple things in life that make things enjoyable, that give me joy. Those make me happier than like winning petty fights with crazy people. Like, you know, it's better to not engage with unreasonable people in general is the lesson. Or at least if you're going to like try to change things, you have to do it in a smarter way. Because like, yeah, you will get exhausted trying to out crazy, crazy. Or energy efficient way. There we go. Yeah, energy efficient way. So I feel like with, I mean, specifically, I guess with FDS, like it's more effective in the sense of like, it's more of a collective consciousness raising than like us trying to be necessarily like individual battle warriors, even though obviously because we're, I guess, somewhat, uh, not really public, but I guess people know our voices and who we are. But you know, we sometimes take the slings and arrows of that. But like, yeah, I mean, a lot of things that are shitty in life exist. And it's always a balance between like what you can do to keep yourself healthy and then like fighting the good fight for the next generation or so, right? Like sometimes you have to lose individual battles to win the war. So sometimes like disengaging with like nutty people, you know, I I never want to tell people like they're wrong for feeling or wanting a sense of justice for like shitty things in the world. But like just knowing that there's probably smarter ways or more efficient ways to go around it. And sometimes you have to play the long game, right? And like playing the long game is tough. But yeah, disengaged from crazy people because like they're in their element and you're not. Yeah. But even playing the long game, if it's like with someone who's inconsequential to your life, like why invest that much time and energy, right? If you're in a situation where it is life and death, like you're an oppressed person and this person has more power than you and it actually is about life and death. And I can actually see, I can actually see why live it, you know, playing the long game would be necessary. But like, for me personally, if this person isn't like a real danger to me, you know, I don't really want to like, ugh, I don't care about scoring justice points against crazy people anymore. It's like, fuck it. Like that shit's behind me now. Literally like just sitting on the couch, chilling with the people that I care about, or just like having those kind of moments of intimacy and so on are more important to me than winning battles. And so that's just for me personally. But you know, I'm hoping that women listening to this episode that your takeaway will be like, yeah, there's a lot of shitty fucked up crazy depraved men out there that are a danger to you. And it's important to enjoy your life anyways. Because if you allow the fear of those crazy people to prevent you from enjoying life, then you're letting those people win. Yeah, don't let the terrorists win. Terrorists hate our freedoms. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, don't let the terrorists win. They hate terrorists hate us being happy. And a lot of these fucking crazy depraved men are terrorists in a way. So yeah. That's it. Thanks for listening. Yes. Thanks for coming back. Savannah, do you have anything to add? No, that was everything. Okay, so that's our show. Please check us out on the website, thefemaledatingstrategy.com. You can discuss this episode on the forum. Also check us out on our Patreon where we have weekly bonus content. You can talk to us on the Discord. That's at patreon.com forward slash thefemaledatingstrategy. You can also follow us on Twitter at femdapstrat and on Instagram at underscore the female dating strategy. Thanks for listening, queens. And don't let the terrorists win. See y'all next week. Die mad. Die mad.